Now, we have been discussing something that to me is really, it's always mattered. I think thankfulness and gratitude is one of those spiritual pillars that forms you. Uh, Ingratitude is like this javelin of, of spiritual blindness that comes into our life and changes the way we see everything. And so there's very few series and topics that I feel I'm going to be repeating every single year, but this is one of them, and it's always been one of them. When I was in youth group, we did a thankfulness series every November, as Natalia can testify. Testify, sister. Um, Because it is important. It's the way we relate to the life God gave us and the way that we see him at work around us, so it's always important. Uh, you know, I work, I work a few jobs. I've got one other main job than this. And then I've also got like another side gig job. <laughs> the other side gig job is with a tech company down in Salem. They build enormous outdoor LED displays. You could think like a jumbotron that you would see at a sporting event. They build those. So I work on marketing team with them and I'm on their product development team with them. And we were going to have this meeting one morning about one project we were working on. And they sent me a text in the morning and it was a picture of one of our displays with a big hole in it, and it was dead all around it. And they said, hey, we can't help because we're helping Dr. So-and-so replace some panels because someone shot his sign this morning. And someone, someone in Beaverton saw his dentist sign and thought, yep, boom, and just shot it. Just shot his sign. So they sent it to me like, we're going to have to postpone the meeting. I said, well, you know, you should tell him. You should tell him because he's a dentist. You should say, you know, if you would floss your sign more often, it wouldn't bleed like this. <laughs> Flossing is that thing that dentists terrify us with, isn't it? There's a cycle to flossing. If you're not one of the 1% that happens to actually just floss all the time, you're part of the other cycle, which is where you don't floss. You don't do it. It takes too long. uh, It's uncomfortable. You go to the dentist, and the dentist tells you, like, you will die if you don't floss. Your, Your teeth are going to fall out, and your bones will be exposed, and infections, and it freaks you out. You take the free floss they give you. They give you a little one. You're like, oh, this isn't going to last long. Truth is, that lasts until the next dental cleaning (laughs) because you'll floss very faithfully for a couple weeks. And then it's just, you know, I'll floss as popcorn gets stuck between my teeth. But and then you go back in, the cycle repeats. Don't floss. Terrified floss. Don't floss. Round and around we go that we floss really great about two weeks a year if you're going in for annual dental cleanings. Because there are some things in life we just do not address unless we hit crisis with them. We let them go on until crisis happens, and then we address these things. And this is a a good way of thinking about the book of Judges. The book of Judges is this time in Israel's history where they're between between Moses and Joseph, and they're between uh, Saul and David. So they're between these leaders. They once had these prophet leaders and kings, and they're floundering. And they keep going through this cycle where they they begin to sin and they begin to worship other gods. They begin to fall into these patterns. And so God pulls up this sense of divine protection over them. They are a nation without a king, without a central military. It's easy to overthrow them. So the other nations rise up and dominate them and they cry out for help. God appoints a leader called the judge. The judge delivers them. They say, we're back. We're doing it. We're spiritually flossing again. Message received. And the cycle repeats over and over and over again. Many judges rise up. Many of them step into the place. And this haunting theme comes up again and again. The key phrase in this book is uh, one that is set off. And it says, at this time, Israel had no king. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And this sense of doing what's right in their own eyes, falling away, 
having to be saved again. This repeats again and again. If it were, uh, if Israel was in a sense of regular human development, this would be like their wild college years. <laughs> between mom and dad's house when they had to do stuff, and it's between when they get older and they have to be responsible for themselves, and they're floundering. They just make mistakes. Uh, and so this is sort of those wild times where they wake up every morning hungover and they screw things up. And as depressing as Israel's behavior is, all the more inspiring is God's behavior. The book is called Judges, but the hero is God in this book. That over and over again, he brings hope, he brings, rest, he brings restitution, or rest, excuse me, restoration to them. He never gives up and he never leaves them. Just because he allows trouble to happen to them, he never leaves them. And we're going to look at the life of one particular judge today. We're going to look at the life of Samson. Uh, he is uh, one of the later judges uh, and in their cycle. And so it kind of gets bigger. The intervals get more sinful, more difficult. He's towards the end. And uh, his life is very interesting. And yes, we're going to be primarily looking at his last days and his death today. That'll be the main thing we're looking at. But it's important to see kind of where he comes from. So we're going to start in Judges 13. We're going to read about his his arrival at the beginning in verse 1 says, Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They stopped flossing. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. A certain man named Zora, uh, uh, a certain man, excuse me, of Zora, named, Man. Uh, how are we going to say his name today? Manoah? Is that what we're feeling? I feel that. <laughs> From the clan of the Danites, uh, had a wife who was childless and unable to give birth. An angel appeared to her and said, you are barren and childless. What a wonderful greeting. (laughs) Don't say that when you meet people for the first time. I've tried it. It doesn't work. Uh, But you are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now see to it that uh, you drink no wine or other fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and have a son uh, whose head is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite dedicated to God from the womb. He will take lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. What's interesting is many of the judges says that they will deliver Israel from this. And it's interesting that Samson's doesn't say he will deliver. It says he will take lead. Uh, we'll come back to that in a little bit. But let's talk about Nazarites for a moment. A Nazarite is this interesting thing. They're like the holy of the holy. Nazarite in Hebrew means separated, which is actually the same thing holy means. And so they're, they're like uh, the, the elite of the elite, like CrossFit people at the gym. Like everyone else is doing normal exercises. They're doing crazy ones. They like to say that their, their workout is your warm-up. And the perfect response to that is, but your friendship is my acquaintance. Uh, <laughs> but they are the elite of the elite, and they're separated. And what's interesting about them, because if we read this story, this is definitely the most comprehensive Nazarite story that we will read for this old set of almost like Israelite monks that you could choose to be part of. We get this idea that it was this long-standing thing, but it was actually meant to be a temporary commitment, something they'd be part of for just a short amount of time. It's not meant to be a lifelong thing. It's just, it's a short late thing. And honestly, this angelic visitation, which sounds a little Christmassy, doesn't it? Like you read it like, oh, I've heard this one before. Um, but this angelic visitation lays out the rules of what Nazarites looked like and the, the rules that come in numbers is that they... 
they don't drink alcohol. Their hair is not to be cut during the duration at which they are under the Nazarite vow, and they are not to touch anything dead to such an extreme level that the law of Moses says that if a Nazarite's father were to pass away, he couldn't go to the funeral until his Nazarite vow is completed because God is holy, God is a God of life, and so for the duration of that, you were to be separated. And the last act of a Nazarite, as they end the Nazarite vow, is the shaving of their head. It's a, it's a ceremonial moment. They go to the temple of, of the Lord, and they shave their head, and their hair is burned, and, they, and the Nazarite vow is completed. And during that time, they're particularly holy. It's a time of, of pursuing God. I would say that the way we would maybe relate to this the most is the way we might fast. In evangelical Christianity, we'll have a time where maybe you're going to make a huge decision. You're going to buy a house. You're going to get married. Or you're going to do something, and you want God to speak to you. Uh, one of the main things we do is we'll fast. You can fast food. Uh, you can fast your phone if you're so brave. Uh, we fast things. Same thing, temporary. You do this for a while to pursue God at a greater level. So Samson is meant to be a Nazarite for a lifetime because the nation at this point needs to get holy and separated and pursue God. Now, each of the, of the judges are given a blessing, but not necessarily in the same laid out way that Samson is. You know, Gideon is very courageous. Uh, we have people that are very spiritually profound. These, these judges have all these different attributes. Samson's is extremely specific. He is a brute, incredibly strong, endowed with, with an unbelievable physical strength as a sign that God is with him. And he is, uh, uh, the strength is meant for one purpose uh, to be given to him, that the Lord would be with him in delivering Israel from the Philistines, that God has begun to grow and to do something among their community and to change them. And as long as, and this is his standard, as long as he's under the Nazarite vow, the Lord's strength will be upon him. The anointing is upon him and he will be empowered. Now, what's interesting about Samson is that a lot of us are familiar that it doesn't go great for him. He has long been viewed as reflecting Israel at this time, that he is encapsulated in one person is an attitude that we see throughout the whole nation. He's called apart, he's holy, he's commissioned for a purpose, and he's gifted to carry out that purpose. But he takes that gift for granted, he takes God for granted squanders the gift, fails in his calling, and has no option but to cry out to God when he is now under the oppression of his enemies. It is the book of Judges wrapped up in one man. I guess after all of the righteous judges that led and were holy, Israel finally gets a judge they can relate to. He's like them. So that's his, that's his life beginning. I want to read one more detail about his life before we get towards the end of it that I think is really noteworthy. It's going to, we're going to jump ahead of chapter. We're now in, in chapter 14. He's a man, and uh, he is wanting to get married. So here we go. Samson went down to Tinmah and saw there were, uh, excuse me, Tinmah, by the way, is a Philistine town. He went uh, down to Tinmah and saw there a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Tinmah. Now get her for me as a wife. His father and mother replied, isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives? Which sounds weird. They mean Israelites. It sounds weird. I know. <laughs> among your relatives or among all our people, must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson said to his father, get her for me. 
She is the right one for me. How far am I reading? We're going to end there. So while we're focusing on his final days, I think it's important to understand his weakness because it plays such a role on those final days. While he's called to be a divine deliverer of the Philistines, he intermarries with them. This is, a, this is a bigger deal than we might realize. It's a serious implication as him as a leader on everybody else. Marriage in their culture, it's not just marriage, like the, just, just these two getting married. It's a welding of cultures and families. They become one, they become kin. Makes it, very, it makes it a very big deal. It's why typically the bride and groom aren't the ones making the final decision or the only ones involved in the decision. This was an agreement between tribes, between families as to how we are going to come together. They brokered it whether you were kingdoms or just families, as if they were alliances. Marrying a family then in this culture with different values and beliefs had enormous implications on everybody. And if you were the leader of the nation, the judge, this would have implications that would roll downhill to everybody who's following you. It is, a, it is meant to be read as a profoundly selfish and impulsive act. His desire is supposed to be subordinate to the needs of the kingdom like any good kingdom or leader would be. Marrying for the reasons to protect the people in good marriages that are secure. He wants aspects of this calling. He wants aspects to be a judge. He wants the respect. He wants the strength. He wants the honor. But he does not want the full burden of it. He doesn't want to have to submit. It is extremely dangerous if we received gifts from God and don't use them in his name. And he emphatically rebukes his father. Uh, this may be uh, not so shocking to us, a son-father fight, but uh, in the Hebrew culture, this is a major breach of standard etiquette. And it's an emphatic phrase, which is this weird Hebrew way. If you, if you reverse the word order, it becomes extremely aggressive. And it basically is a starting pistol to a fight. They either capitulate or they're going to begin to fight back. And the way that he says this to his dad is extremely disrespectful. It's in the reversed order. It's in the emphatic order. And a line is drawn in the sand. And he says something that's interesting. We don't see it in this. And maybe you have a Bible that says it, but the NIV says, she's right to me. Literally in Hebrew, he says, um, the actual phrase is, she is good in my eyes. That phrase that we've heard over and over again in this book. There was no king in those days, and the nation did what was right in their own eyes. And now we see him saying with his lips what we've been told by the narrator of this book, the Israelite nation's been saying with their heart for a while now. We will do things, and this is good for us because it is right in our own eyes as we see it. Israel did what was right in their own eyes, and with no sense of submission to God, so does Samson, and so can we. What is good? You know, people, there's so many people that think they know exactly what God would say on any matter in life because they believe something about him. They believe he's good. And they don't realize that they have this grand assumption of what good means. And so they think they could speak for God. They think they could fill out a ballot for God. They think they could speak for him in any room, in any situation, because they know God is good and I know him better than any religious person might know him. I know these things so deeply. And we don't realize there's a huge tripping point on that one question, what is good? We have to accept that to be human is to mean that we are very blind on our own spiritual eyes, that to do what is good in our own eyes can be extremely misleading. 
You could take the Portland homeless crisis and you could lay it before a dozen different people and say, do what is right in your own eyes. And the interpretation of good in that room would be so different that you would have 12 different solutions to that complex problem. What is good? How should we define our view of good? The Bible says that if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen good. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen truth. To be a Christian is to set your hope on Jesus, that that's what good looks like. That's how I will interpret it to be. That we wouldn't repeat a cycle within ourselves of constant sin and failure like we see in Judges of pulling it together, falling apart, pulling it together, falling apart because we lead our lives doing what is right in our own eyes. That it would be said of us that in that time in his life, there was no king and he did what was right in his own eyes. But with Christ, we can say, in that time, there was a king and he did what was right according to the king's teaching and wisdom. If you wanted to know what daily Christian life looks like, it's going to look a lot like everything we do. We let Jesus define what good is, what right is, so that when we do what is good, it wouldn't be doing what's good in our eyes, but doing what's good is what we hear him speaking and leading, what we see him doing in Scripture, to wrestle with the things that are difficult that he says, the things that are healing that he says, and to let that orient us in who, who we are that we would not approach uh, Jesus like a floating island, but like the lighthouse that we look at and we know where the shoreline is, where we are and where we're going. It's something that we have that they didn't get to have then. So it has two meanings. One is that it is good in my own eyes. I judge this to be correct, but his Samson's phrasing has a compound meaning within it as well. I mean, she's literally good to my eyes. I like the way she looks. He's referring to his lust for her. A very weird thing to say to mom and dad. Just saying. And now we see Samson's great weakness. This is going to be a problem from him from, the, from this marriage, which, by the way, is over before the wedding. <laughs> he ends it. And he ends it not because he got smart and was like, this is a bad idea. Should have listened to mom and dad. He's mad because she told her, her friends what the answer was to his riddle. That's a little immature if you ask me. But we see what's going to build up and eventually and destroy him. And it's a combination of his lust and pride. What is notable is that it's sometimes said that women are his downfall. And uh, this is not to say at all, watch out for women. They're very crafty. The Bible's overall message about women is extremely clear. Women are created in the image of God, and they are due the same majesty and respect as their male counterparts. There's something really powerful. I read that phrase when I was studying for this in one of my books. Uh, majesty and dignity is what it would refer to, that women, uh, the Bible's message is of majesty and dignity. And I just had to stop and think for a moment because it was so, it, was, it felt like that's that what I was talking about, that orienting good. You know, we talk about equal rights and things, and those are, it's like they almost fall short of the real truth of, of that word majesty and dignity. I wonder how different all men would, would react to women if they saw them as that as a being created in the image of God with unbelievable majesty and dignity. They would not say the things they say. It was very powerful. I guess the question is, is who kills the victim? Is it the murderer or the weapon? 
If someone gets shot with a gun by a murderer, do we say it was the gun or the murderer? We always say it's the murderer and not the tool, the weapon, the, the candlestick, wherever it was that it happened. And so in the same way, perhaps women are used weaponized against Samson, the murderer is Samson. And this marriage, as I said, ends before the wedding. So now we get later on. He has uh, been a womanizer. He has had times when he has, for his own glory, done amazing things to frustrate the Philistines. There was a time they tried to subdue him. He took a donkey bone and routed a thousand of them. He has been untouchable. And it's, been, it's almost like that's why God gave him his strength is so that they could be like, we could get him in our city. We could close the gates. We could have him surrounded. But he's so empowered that if God is with Samson, we cannot touch him. And so he's had these, these demigod moments up to this point of these incredible acts against them. But at the same time, he's so distracted. There's never a moment you see him organizing the people, lifting things up. He never seems to speak about the nation turning back to God. And so he's getting to a point in his life that he's almost becoming what you could describe as a bored demigod. Because he's going to do some stuff that we're about to read that's so stupid. You wonder, how could he be so dumb? We know brain or brawn over brain is a real thing, but how is it this bad? Is it because he's that strong? He's that stupid? In a way, yes, he's arrogant. He's playing with his power. So now we're going to go into his, uh, the downfall of Samson. So we're going to jump into six, uh, chapter 16 later in his life, which begins in a perfect way here to enter that sometime later. He fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorak, whose name was Delilah. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him so uh, we may tie him up and subdue him, each of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. Now, I looked at 1,100 shekels of silver was so much money that in, if you were to use like a purchasing power index, it's about $15 million. Um, it's actually, the, there's a later time in scripture that that is the amount given for a king's ransom. So she's offered a king's ransom. So Delilah said to Samson, uh, tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. Uh, she's not even hiding it. Like just theoretically, if there were Philistines hiding behind that curtain right there, what might one do? Samson answered her. Uh, now remember, the source of his strength is his Nazarite vow. Samson said to her, if anyone ties me with fresh bow strings that have been dried, I will become as weak as any other man. Then the rulers of the Philistines brought her seven fresh bow strings uh, that had not been dried, and, and uh, she tied him up with them. Like, I guess he just sat there. I don't know. With men hidden in the room, she called out, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But... He snapped the bowstrings as easily as a piece of strings uh, snaps when it comes close to flame. So the secrets of his strength were not discovered. Then Delilah said to Samson, you have made a fool of me. You lied to me. Come now, tell me, how can you be tied? And he said, if anyone ties me securely with new ropes that have never been used, I'll become as weak as any other man. Delilah took new ropes and tied him with them. Then uh, with men hidden... In the room, she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But Samson snapped the ropes with, off his arms uh, as if they were threads. Delilah said to Samson, all of the time you have been making a fool of me and lying to me. Tell me, how can you be tied? And he replied, if you weave, this is 
Come on, man. Um, If you weave seven braids of my hair into fabric on the loom and tighten it with a pin, I'll become as weak as any other man. So while he was sleeping, Delilah took seven braids of his hair and wove them into the fabric and tightened it with a pin. Again, she she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep, pulled up the pin uh, in the loom with the fabric. Now, these stories sound incredibly bizarre. And I would say as you read them, they sound like they don't even belong in the Bible. They're weird, aren't they? Like his solutions are weird. It doesn't sound like Jewish belief, and it wasn't. He's actually playing into Philistine superstition. He's using stories that would sound convincing to them. The reality of his strength is a little bit more what we would be familiar with with biblical revelation, that it's God. God is with him. He has a, he has a vow, and God is with him and empowering him. But he's coming up with these ridiculous stories to fall into their bizarre mythological beliefs. And as I said, how can he be so stupid? Because he's never had a problem before. It's like he's invincible. He's playing with his strength. It's become a toy of personal gratification. It's like he's, he's playing with his judge's strength in a way that a kid would play with his dad's gun if he found it. And someone's about to get hurt. It poses a good question for us to think about our own strengths and gifts. Are you wielding them well? Do you realize that the gifts you have, the things you're really good at, they were given to you by God, and those gifts have a purpose. When we use them and we exercise them, do we think of God, or are we playing with them? It's a good question to think through. You know, some people were given a very uh, incredible mind we could call a a beautiful mind. They can wrap around, they can see things and understand things with great intelligence and wisdom. Given this gift that they could be teachers to make things known to other people. But how often do we see people who are highly intelligent use it not to build people up and make them stronger, but to tear people down to make themselves look stronger? Have you ever been in a debate with someone who you knew was a better arguer than you, more intelligent, maybe had more facts memorized, and they're just attacking you and beating you down? Is it weird for you to think back to that person and realize God gave them that gift, not to tear me down, but to build me up and other people? Whatever your gift is, use it with God in mind. Every time we dispense with it. Now, the lies for Samson, they they progress in irreverence. If you recall, as I said, one of the things you cannot do as a Nazarite is you cannot touch anything dead. Fresh bowstrings would be uh, undried animal sinew, meaning that for it to touch him is a violation of his Nazarite vow. And the loom is particularly reckless because now he's toying with his hair, which actually is the secret to the riddle. And it continues. Back on the stupid train. So he told her everything. Ugh. No razor has ever been used on my head, he said, because I have been a Nazarite dedicated to God from my mother's womb. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me and I would become as weak as any other man. Then Delilah saw that he had told her everything. So she sent word to the rulers of the Philistines, come back once more. He has told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistines returned with the silver in their hands. 
After putting him to sleep on her lap, she called for someone to shave the seven braids off of his hair and so began to subdue him. Then his strengths left him. And she called out, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He woke up from his sleep and thought, and this is where you really can see how was he stupid? Where was his arrogance? It's right here. I'll go out as before and shake myself free. This has been the thing he said over and over again. Every time he has broken his Nazarite vow, every time he violated it, I'll shake it off. It doesn't get me. I'm invincible. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And I like the way the narrator writes that, don't you? He could have said he didn't know his hair was cut, but he's letting you know Samson thought it was the hair, but he didn't realize that the Lord had left him. Then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, and took him down to Gaza, binding him with bronze shackles. They set him to grinding grain in the prison. Samson has violated his Nazarite vow in countless ways. He has touched dead animals. He has uh, eaten honey right out of the carcass of a dead lion. Uh, he broke it several times in the story we've read here. He's consorted with prostitutes. He's drank alcohol. He's done things, but if you read particularly the law of Moses on Nazarite, if any of those violations required a renewal of the vow. But what marks the end? What marks the moment when you're not a Nazarite anymore? The last ceremonial thing was the cutting off of the hair. And it's a pattern I think we can all identify with, that before we do the really big sin, we've been doing a dress rehearsal for it for a long time. And we had this one thing and we thought, okay, well, I'll do everything but that. And I won't go quite that far. But if you ever get to a point that all the boxes are checked but that, you're going to get your hair cut. Now, eyes being put out is an incredibly cruel punishment, and it was very common. It had very uh, specific implications of what it looked like and meant. It was about fully stopping an enemy from ever being a problem for you ever again, while also keeping them alive as a horrifying reminder to the living. To make them fully subdued, and it was an image of complete and utter subjugation because now they can't even walk across a room unless you give them permission to by sending a guide. He has had his life completely transformed from someone whose life was completely governed by sight, what looked good to him, who looked good to him, what was good in his own eyes, to having his eyes completely put out and blind. And I'll tell you, his spiritual blindness, it happened way before his physical blindness. His brawn over brains is pretty strong, but the lesson must be getting through to some point here. Now, there's very romantic pictures of Samson milling uh, grain. It's this huge wheel, the one you put donkeys on. He's like with his strength, and he's all chained up. We have to remember, he did not have his strength then. Furthermore, rotary mills didn't exist for another thousand years. So there's a bit of history for you today. I want to show you a picture of what these were. These were called saddle kerns. They were stones with another stone, and you would have grains, and you would grind them by hand. It's extremely uncomfortable work and very painful. It was said to be so painful, it sent aching pains up your back. People did not want to do it. It was a workload commonly given to prisoners and slaves. Prisoners more than anything, as it was such an image of subjugation, a person down on their knees in total pain, producing food for everybody else. 
In fact, in Lamentations, uh, Jeremiah laments an image of this. He says in Lamentations 5.13, young men toil at the millstones, boys stagger under loads of wood. Because milling at a millstone is a clear and utter image of subjugation. Again, Samson plays out the image of his nation. Threshing and grinding grains for other people. According to the uh, covenant curses that are in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, this is actually precisely what is said to happen to Israel if they ever uh, turned against God in in persistent rebellion. The nation would be seized, blinded, exiled, imprisoned, humiliated, and put into forced labor. But what's really interesting is just like Deuteronomy 28 through 30 says, that Israel one day, that God will bring them back, that they're never without hope, that he'll restore them. There will be grace in the end. Samson has that same grace. After a lifetime of failure, we pick up in 22. But the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved off. Now the rulers of the Philistines assembled to offer great sacrifices to get to Dagon, their God, and to celebrate, saying, Our God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. When the people saw him, uh, they praised God, saying, Our God has delivered our enemy into our hands, and the one who has laid waste our lands and multiplied our slain. While they were in high spirits, they shouted, Bring out Samson to entertain us. So they called, they called Samson out of the prison, and he performed for them. Then they stood him among the pillars. Samson said to the servant boy who held his hand, Put me where I can feel the pillars that support the temple, so that I may lean against them. Now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there, and, uh, on, and on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, Remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more and let me with one more blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Then Samson reached towards the two central pillars on which the temple stood, bracing himself against them, his right hand on one and his left on the other. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed uh, with all his might and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus, He killed many more when he died than when he lived. Then his brothers and fathers and the whole family went uh, down to get him. They brought him back and buried him between Zorah and, I don't know, Eshtol, in the tomb of Manoah, his father. And he he had led Israel 20 years. By entertainment, bring Samson out, let him entertain us, they mean mockery. He isn't dancing and singing or performing. What they would commonly do is if there is one particular prisoner you love to subjugate and humiliate, they would put things in front of them and strike them with whips, make them run, stumble over it, or they would go in a circle around them and hit them and they wouldn't know where things were coming from. People liked watching them cower and not know where it would come from. Honestly, there's there's no limit to where your imagination could grow with how cruel uh, such a thing was. And it's the lowest of the low. This man chosen to be Yahweh's judge is now a laughingstock in the temple of Dagon. He's a prisoner in chains, and he's, he who once held this nation by the throat is having his hand led by a little boy. And this sight is horrible. Honestly, for all the failure we read with him, how do you not pity this man in this moment? 
His life is lying in disgusting ruins. You know, chills were meant to be going up your spine. The, uh, the author intends when you read his words and his hair began to grow. It's this, it's this moment where it gets so depressing and then there's this moment of hope. But his hair begins to grow. The plot twist. Samson forgets God, but God remembers Samson. And he begins in him a long and slow process of hope and restoration. Though God's people wander and they fall away and they go so far from him, he surely restores their fortunes. And hope is never departed from them, even in the depths of their failures. If their failures lead them to being the prisoner of enemy gods in their temple, being laughed at, the Lord is still there. There comes a point under oppression and failure when hope starts to be blown on what looks like coals going out. When hope starts to dawn and a voice somewhere says, it begins. As it said, his hair begins to grow. So for us, it begins. And I'm wondering, is there a voice whispering in your life this morning that no matter where you are, no matter how far you've gone, Something is saying it begins. That right now begins the slow process. He is praying to Yahweh from within a pagan temple, getting exactly what he deserves for a lifetime of failure. His prayer comes imperfect. It comes self-centered. There's nothing about this of Lord empower me so that I could fulfill my design in, in subduing and getting rid of these Philistines. He wants revenge for his own eyes. Yet God is gracious enough to answer that prayer and to remember Samson. And at that point, the hero enters the story. The Lord God, King of heaven and earth, enters the temple of Dagon with awesome power to bring destruction down on the enemies of God's people. Samson's prayer is answered in that place that shocking place. If God would honor the prayer of a man with such a wasted life, wouldn't he also honor yours? That no matter how far you've gone, no matter how much you feel like he isn't going to listen, if he would restore that man, that it would begin, that the hair starts to grow, that the strength begins to restore, that the Lord would hear him and redeem his life. For a, for a note at the end of his life that's so bittersweet. One meant to subdue the Philistines, killed more in his death than in living. Yet the Lord was with him, empowered him, and brought him honor in the end. I want to tell you, every moment is a prayer moment. All the things in our life to be thankful for, there's not much more you could be thankful for than that. That every moment is a prayer moment, a moment that we can uh, face the Lord again and that he'll hear us. I wonder if such an understanding of God's grace could have changed his life had, he, had Samson known that. Would he have found that this God that empowered him becomes more attractive, more dominating to himself, that his eyes would have been drawn there, that he wouldn't have taken God for granted, but would have been grateful for the gifts that were given him and would have wielded him the way they were supposed to be wielded. It's important for us to know that God is there all the time. 
and that that is a thing to be grateful for, that in our darkest moment, a voice speaks, it begins. In our darkest moment, when we say, God, would, are you listening right now? He's listening. Into the depth of failure, when we are getting the payment that we deserve, the Lord still arrives. In your lowest moments, he is there. If he was there for Samson, he's there for you. And that is a thing to be grateful for. Something that could change us, something that could transform us as we realize that we could continue running if we wanted to, but there's also an amazing current pulling us back. And if we call out to him, he shows up with power in our darkest moments and delivers us. Let's pray. Lord, I ask for just an incredible sense of how close you are that if you would be that gracious to such a difficult and obstinate man, you would also be gracious with us. If you heard that imperfect prayer, you hear our imperfect prayers. Lord, I pray that for those of us who feel so trapped and so stuck with that gradual and wonderful deliverance of hope begin and that your voice would speak, let it begin. God, I pray for an amazing gratitude to know that you're there to well up within us, that we would remember what a precious gift that is. Let us live every day appreciating you, not taking you for granted, your gifts, the time you speak to us, the things you do, but first and foremost, Lord, let us have gratitude to you that in this season of thanks, one thing goes on top that we are thankful for, for all things our God, in the amazing, gracious love he has for us. In your name we pray, amen.